Would you please stand for our call to worship from Isaiah 61, verse 10. This is God's word. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God makes us able to worship him, and so would you worship him with me now? We'll sing hymn 363. Um, and before we sing that, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present with us this morning. Would you lead us in this time of worship? Would you cause us to sing the, about the glory and the praise that is due your name? And would you lead us in this time? Fill our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing hymn number 363, which is We Gather Together. If you would take your bulletins, we'll continue with our confession of faith. And after the Lord's Prayer, I'll invite you to say the, uh, after the pastoral prayer, I'll invite you to say the Lord's Prayer if you would like to join me in that. But first, let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. Believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We have a few moments to pray as a church body, and as I just said, we'll have a moment where um, you can pray with me the Lord's Prayer, and uh, before we do that, let me lead us in prayer. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray as the psalmist prayed that you would prove us and try us, that you would test our hearts and our minds, because God, your steadfast love is before our eyes this morning, and we walk in your faithfulness and not our own. God, as we reflect upon our week, even upon our mourning, we know that we have failed to walk in integrity this week, and our trust in you has wavered at times. Perhaps we've spent too much time sitting with people of falsehood, as the psalmist describes, or whether it be ourselves that's spreading gossip or half-truths or others we know we ought not to be spending time with. So, Lord God, we pray that you would wash our hands in innocence, that you would cause us to proclaim thanksgiving aloud this morning and help us to tell each other about your wondrous deeds. God, we pray, do not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You've sent your son, Jesus, to take our sin upon himself. He has paid for our iniquities. And Jesus, you have experienced the pain and wrath that we deserve, and we can only lay at your feet in worship. God, you remind us, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love toward us. As far as the east is from the west, So far have you removed our transgressions from us. Lord, as we move about in the places you've sent us, at school or on our sports teams or at work, would you remind us of this great truth and humble us by your love. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Make us people who work to learn about others' struggles rather than dismiss them. Make us people who forgive because you have forgiven us. We pray you would humble us, Lord, that you would make us people who know that everything we have, including our faith and salvation and sanctification, has been given to us by you. Lord, as you do that in our lives, would you continue to be with our church congregation, with those who are sick, um, several families and individuals, Lord, this past week as school begins um, and as the bacteria is spread, Lord, would you sustain your people uh, with physical health? Would you recuperate your people? God, as you continue to build this church and the ministries of this church, would you uh, bless us by um, helping those people who are getting the family life building back Together again, would you help them to uh, complete that work so that we can again gather together as early as next week and enjoy that space that you have blessed us with? 
Lord, there's so much going on here, and we pray that you would bless each ministry, each group that's meeting during the week uh, with your presence, that we would come to know you better through your church. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would continue to lead us in this worship service, and we thank you for this time of prayer. And we, we pray now, as Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Please pray with me. God, as you have blessed us, would you give us hearts that are eager to give back to you? And would you make use of these tithes and offerings for your glory, for your name? Lord, as we look forward to the things that you have for us this year, would you use all these ministries and all these events and all these places and Bible studies, uh, not just for our own sake, but for your sake and for your great name? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue singing with hymn 347, which is the church's one foundation, hymn 347.
I'd invite you to turn with me now to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to be reading Genesis 2.18 through 3.1. And before I read it, let me pray for us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would use it to instruct us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, and most of all, to show us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Hear God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said... This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this ends the reading of God's word. So throughout uh, Jewish and Christian history, it's believed that Genesis 2 records the first marriage. God takes this first man and this first woman. He unites them together and pronounces that they are one flesh and that they're to cleave together. And the story is told in such a way that they immediately face problems. No sooner are the rose petals on the ground and the rice in the air, here comes the serpent slithering over the rose petals looking to destroy what God has created. When you talk about marriage, uh, there's so many things you could say, but I have questions today like, why is marriage so hard? Why is marriage worth fighting for? Why do we care? Why should we care? If you aren't married, what can this passage teach you? If you are married, what can this passage teach you? Um, if you're not married, but want to be married. If you were once married, but aren't anymore. Well, this passage has something to say to every one of us. So I want us to see three points from it 
the structure of marriage, the problem with marriage, and the hope of marriage. So number one, the structure of marriage. Uh, I have four points under this first point. Marriage is romantic, it's binding, it's militaristic, and it expresses vulnerability. So there's something here for the men and the women. It's romantic and it's militaristic. So first it's romantic. You can't escape this in the passage because the first thing Adam does after he sees this woman God has created is he doesn't write a dissertation, try to explain, oh, look at this woman who appears to be similar to me yet different from me in proportion and significant ways. Uh, Instead, he writes a poem. He writes a love song. He's a romantic at heart. And one of the most interesting things about the passage I've never noticed until studying for this message this past week is that while you have God speaking throughout Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the first words that you actually hear man speak aren't about God and aren't actually necessarily to God. They're about the woman. He's praising this woman whom God has created. You know, God often gets the attention of men through women. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. It's okay, go ahead. (laughs) Release the tension. Um, There was a movie in the 90s where uh, Mike Myers' character was always having woman problems, and he was a beatnik poet, and he would go to this coffee shop and sing songs, and he always had a chorus. He was always talking about his romantic problems. And he would say, woman, woman, whoa, man. And that's Adam in this passage. Whoa, man. Uh, Verse 23, the man said, this at last. You know, he's been going from animal to animal, naming all of these animals for however long that took. And no, this isn't going to work. That's, not, that's definitely not going to work. And th- at last, whoa, look at this. This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this is proof of what you ladies always suspected. The perfect man wrote love poems for his wife. There's romance in the creation story. Secondly, marriage is not only romantic, it's binding. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God says men are meant to leave their fathers and mothers and devote their lives uh, to their marriage. In other words, in modern parlance, guys are not meant to live in their parents' basements playing video games forever. They're meant to launch. They're meant to leave. Second, men are meant to hold fast to their wives, like they're joined together. That means they're meant to stay close and to hold on. Jordan Peterson says what a marriage is and why marriages work is basically two people, a man and a woman, handcuff themselves together and say, I'm not going anywhere. And that's the only thing that can allow you to be honest and open with each other is this, this duty that you've taken upon yourself to say, like, I'm going to say some ugly things about myself, some things I'm ashamed of, I'm going to tell you my problems, I'm going to gripe, I'm going to complain, and you're going to do the same thing to me, and we're not going to go anywhere. And when that works out, it's going to be amazing. It also means that everything that man does is supposed to be done in reference to his wife. That means that you can't uh, make my, or you should not, not that you can't, you shouldn't 
make major financial decisions without reference to your wife, O oh, men. You shouldn't stay home or stay out late when your wife has no idea what you're doing without reference to her. You should call her on the phone, let her know what's going on. God sees you as one unit living one life in union together. So that's the second thing. It's romantic marriage. It's binding. Third, it's militaristic. In verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That helper fit for him phrase is used twice. Well, all of Genesis 1 and 2 is called God's creation good. This is the first instance where God says something isn't good. And what isn't good is man being alone. By the time of the creation of woman, you know, Adam has God, which should be everything you need, right? He has all the animals, he has all the plants, he has sources for food, but God says there's still something lacking. And it's this suitable helper who is fit for him. So the ESV translates it, a helper fit for him. The King James translates it famously, a help meet for him. It's a hard phrase to translate. But if you read the Hebrew experts, one theme that always comes up is that the Hebrew word ezer, that's translated help, is used around 80 times in the Old Testament. And it's almost always used in a military context. For instance, in 1 Samuel 7, there's a famous stone there that's erected after a military battle of the Israelites against the Philistines. That stone is called Ebenezer, Eben Ezra, a stone of help. It's a celebration of a victory uh, in battle. And so Robert Alter, the Jewish commentator, says, Help is too weak a word because it suggests a merely auxiliary function, where Ezra elsewhere connotes active intervention on behalf of someone, especially in military contexts. So why am I talking about this? Because what that word help is telling us is that Adam needs someone to join him in the battle of life, to stand beside him when it's, you know, even if it's us against the world, someone who's going to stand there and dig their heels in and fight in this life with him. In fact, uh, part of what we didn't read in Genesis 2 is that God commands Adam to guard and keep the Garden of Eden. And that language, guard and keep, is used later by Moses uh, to talk about what the priests were meant to do in the temple. They were to protect the temple uh, from outside forces, from anyone, from, from Gentiles or whatever it may be, who might come in the temple and defile it. And so there's this image that Adam and Eve in paradise in the Garden of Eden, they're standing shoulder to shoulder, and they're to keep the invaders out. And of course, that's fitting because what's the very next thing that happens? That's why we read verse 1 of chapter 3. Here comes the serpent slithering into God's paradise. And we have this context set. Adam and Eve, dig your heels in, get ready to fight, because here it comes. So marriage is militaristic. Lastly, under this point, marriage expresses supreme vulnerability. See that in verse 25, the very last verse of the chapter. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, can you imagine that feeling? Supreme innocence, supreme vulnerability, no barriers, no baggage, no shame. Man and woman, 
happy together in paradise. Complete vulnerability. Nothing to hide. But here comes the problem. Second point, the problem with marriage. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Here comes the serpent slithering over the rose petals. The honeymoon is just getting started, so it appears. But here comes evil. It's so interesting the way that this is written in the original text. In Hebrew, the word for crafty used to describe the serpent is arum. It's, a po- it's poetic because the word used to describe Adam and Eve in the previous verse as naked is arumin. They're very similar. The man and the woman are arumin. The serpent is arum. The man and the woman, it's hard to convey that in English, but it's the man and woman, it's like they're exposed and the serpent is evil. The man and woman are naked and he's crafty. They're innocent, and he's ready to take advantage. That's the idea. In other words, when Moses poetically introduces the serpent onto the scene with these words, Arumim, over against Arum, for the, for the Hebrew reader, it's meant to sound out like the music to Jaws just started playing. Like, Donut. Something really bad is about to happen here. An apex predator is coming for these naked an innocent, newly married uh, young man and woman. We know from Genesis 2 that marriage is meant to be militaristic. So what are Adam and Eve supposed to do? We already know it, right? They're to dig in their heels and they're to fight against the serpent. But they don't. The serpent tempts Eve while Adam idly stands by and watches it happen. He never intervenes other than to partake of the fruit when Eve offers it to him. And by the end of the serpent's temptation, Adam is blaming it all on his wife. In the second recorded sentence ever spoken by God to man, Genesis 3.12, it says, or by man to God, the, uh, the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So, uh, man has been romantic and has praised women all the way back from the creation, and man has blamed women for all of their problems ever since the fall. There's nothing new under the sun. Man goes from writing love poems to saying, that woman you gave me, God. That's it. It's right there in the creation and fall story. So here's the question for today. Ever since the serpent slithered over the rose petal, so to speak, and turned man and woman against each other, and the curse that brought enmity between man and woman, that brought pain and childbearing, that brought sweat and struggle and thorns into the creation. Is there hope for marriage in a fallen world? Is there a chance that we can re-enchant marriage and see it as beautiful in the modern world? You know, marriage faces so many new challenges today. Uh, The psychologist and relationship expert Esther Perel says that faithfulness in marriage is the only command God takes so seriously that he commands it twice in the Ten Commandments. One command against being unfaithful, the other command against even thinking about being unfaithful. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
Esther Perel says, think about it. We live in a world where infidelity is easier than ever because of the Internet. And we also live in a world where infidelity is harder to hide than ever because of the Internet. And she says, you know, we, we have these trumped-up expectations as Americans of what marriage is supposed to be where a woman looks at a man and she wants security, predictability, safety, dependability, reliability, permanence, the perfect home, but at the same time she wants adventure, novelty, mystery, risk, danger, the unknown, the unexpected, surprise, journey, travel, Give me, in marriage, we want a best friend, a trusted confidant, but we also want passion and surprise and all that while we're going to live twice as long as our grandparents did. It's impossible. The modern idea of marriage is you come to one person and say, give me the world, and they can't. And this is a time when leaving and divorce is so easy. And you'll be shamed if you stay with a bad spouse. You'll be shamed if you divorce a bad spouse. How can you possibly win in the modern world with marriage? Here's the last point. The hope of marriage. The hope isn't as much in the structure of marriage as it is in the structure of Genesis 1 through 3. So in the beginning, God creates the world in chapter 1. He performs the first wedding, the first marriage ceremony in chapter 2. Then the serpent slithers up over the rose petals in chapter 3. Have you ever thought about the parallel of the creation account to the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation? In Revelation 19 through 22, we read the story of how God is making everything right. And what do you get there? The binding of Satan, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the new creation. It's Genesis 1 through 3 in reverse. God creates, he performs the first wedding, Satan enters the scene, the end of the book of Revelation, Satan is bound, the church is married to her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, and God makes the new creation. He makes all things new. In other words, everything from Genesis 1 through 3, through the end of Revelation, all that's in the middle is telling us the story that through Jesus Christ, God is promising to undo everything that went wrong in Genesis 3. Everything the serpent did is going to be undone. Revelation twenty-two fourteen says that because of Christ, people who descended from the ones who ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are going to have the right to eat from the tree of life. Adam saw that hope all the way back in Genesis 3. We will look at it more next week. But he saw it because God promised in front of Adam and Eve to crush the head of the serpent through a descendant of Adam and Eve. Through the seed of the woman, God would crush the head of the serpent. And Adam's response to that proclamation by God is a giant act of faith. He says, it says in verse 20 of Genesis 3, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother 
of all living. We didn't have time to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 3 or 2. But you remember what God said to Adam and Eve? The day you eat of that tree, you will surely what? Die. And here's Adam and Eve. Here they are standing there in front of God. You know, cover, they've covered themselves up. God clothes them. And Adam's saying, how can it be? I'm alive. She's alive. God says we're going to have children. God says these, through these children, God's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so he calls his wife named Eve because she's the mother of all living. The Hebrew word translated Eve means life. Adam and Eve died spiritually on that day in the garden. They had to be born again, just like all of us had to be born again. But they weren't physically dead. There was still hope. They could start over. They could stay married. They could stop blaming one another. They could have children. They could have a family. And that family could be instrumental in making right what they had just made wrong through falling into this temptation. Now, this isn't going to be easy. We're going to see this in the rest of the story. We'll see in the next chapter, their firstborn. Boy, proud parents, right, of the first children ever born. One son murders the other. They have to, mar they have to bury their son just in the flip of a page after chapter 3. Adam and Eve are going to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. Things aren't going to be the same as they were. John MacArthur says, he makes the point, the garden was in the west. And the passage says in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden to the east. So for the rest of their lives, every time they felt a strong wind or saw a sunset, it was going to point them back to what they lost. Now, I love sunsets. I haven't, you can tell me afterward, but I've yet to hear anybody tell me, boy, I hate sunsets. Sunsets are terrible. But have you ever asked yourself, what's so magical about a sunset? It's just the end of a day. You're another day older. You're going to go to bed in a little while. It's like, whoop-de-doo. But sunsets are a beautiful metaphor for this whole story of Adam and Eve. Because every time they see one, they can look back on a world they lost. But somehow yet, they point us to a glimmer of hope that there's going to be a new day. That we can start over again. It's, in fact, it's a weird coincidence of history that the Hebrew word kava, which is, means life, over time gave way in English to the word Eve. The K at the beginning was taken off, it became Eva, then became Eve. But think about that word Eve. What does it mean? It means darkness. It's that time between the sunrise or the sunset and the next sunrise. God tells Adam and Eve, you are going to experience darkness, strife, pain, this marriage, this life is going to be difficult. They're going to bury a murdered son. The rest of the book of Genesis is going to go along with this, but there's still hope that the sun will come out tomorrow. There's still hope. Every day begins when? At midnight, in pitch black midnight, a new day starts. And that's the hope that God is putting out before us. You go through the rest of the book of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah, major figures. Now Noah, all of them have struggles with their marriage and with their family. You know, Jacob and Esau, brothers, already fighting in the womb before they've, they're even born. Before their umbilical cords are detached, they're already fighting with each other. Jacob grows up 
falls in love with a woman but is forced to marry her sister. That sister, Leah, struggles to make a husband who's not in love with her, fall in love with her. Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, he and his brothers hate each other. They essentially kidnap him, sell him off into slavery. It's dark. The family history of Genesis is dark. The family history of the whole Bible is dark. This is not rose-colored glasses when you read this book. Maybe the saddest family story in the whole Old Testament is Job. It's another place where the serpent shows up to try to destroy a family. Job has ten children. He loves them. He prays for them. He sacrifices every morning for them, just in case they might have committed sin that day. God allows those children to be taken away from him. On one tragic day, they all die. And his wife's response, she doesn't dig her heels in and stand behind Job and say, this is terrible. We're going to fight through this together, us against the world. She says, curse God and die. But Job doesn't. He fights through the pain. He fights through the loss. And at the end of the story, it tells us that God blessed Job with ten more children. Replacement children, so to speak. But they're not replacement children. Really profound quote I read a while back about the book of Job from a commentator. The commentator said, As for the question of whether ten new children can replace those lost, it is useless to focus on how much it costs God to restore Job's fortunes. The real question is how much it costs Job to become a father again. Like a Holocaust survivor whose greatest act of courage is to bear children after the cataclysm, Job chooses, against all odds, to live again. Job and his wife choose to bear children into a, a world full of hurt, blending beauty and heartbreaking pain. Job chooses to love again, even when he knows the cost of such love. Living again after unspeakable pain is a kind of resurrection, end quote. That's Job. That's also Adam and Eve. And that's Jesus Christ. He was the perfect son of a perfect father. And at the end of his life, he's saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father-son relationship. The wrath of God poured out on his son. But after that, he lived again. He rose from the dead. And this is kind of the point of everything that I want to say this morning. No matter what the culture is saying and doing about marriage and family, no matter how much Satan is trying to destroy the institution of marriage and family, and for you, if you're in a tough marriage, if you've been in an ended marriage, if you've lost a spouse... If you want to get married but can't seem to find the right person. If your children are a mess. Children, if your parents are a mess. Every new day starts in the pitch black midnight. You can live again. Your marriage can live again. The institution of marriage can live again. Because, as Chesterton said, we have a God who has a kind of a tricky way of getting out of graves. Because he is risen. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. We can live again. No matter what we faced in our marriages. 
And if you want to find joy in a world that demands that we go to our spouses and say, give me everything, and they can't do it, Jesus is the one who you can go to and say, give me everything, and he actually can. He can give you the world and heaven thrown in with it. Years ago, I heard Tim Keller preaching a sermon on the Bible's command that we honor our father and mother. And I thought he said something really profound. He said, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to a room full of people who were asking the question, how can I possibly honor my father and my mother when they've been terrible fathers and terrible mothers? And, and I fled to New York, in his case, he's saying, precisely to get away from them. And Keller's answer to that was, you know, the problem that most of us have with our families, with our spouses, with our parents, with our children is, we are going to them and saying, give me every, we're saying, give me everything. Give me the world. We have these monumental expectations. We think that our parents are supposed to be messiahs. They're supposed to give us everything, provide for us everything, deal with us perfectly, and they can't do it. Not since the fall, we're all sinners. And the same thing with, you know, with our children, our parents. We look at our child. And, we, and all of our unfilled expectations for our own lives, we cast them upon them. And we live vicariously through them. And they're never going to live up. They're never going to measure up. And so Keller said, what you have to do with your parents, with your spouse, you, you have to say, I'm going to let God be God. And I'm going to let that person be the fallen person that they are. They're never going to be God because they're not God. Only, so you have to go to Jesus. You have to go to God. You have to get that ultimate need. The ultimate needs that you need met from them. And then out of the strength that you get from him meeting your ultimate needs, you bring that into your marriage. You bring that into your parenting. You bring that to your parents. The ultimate answer for us is that we need to get the ultimate love we need from the Father. And we need to bind ourselves to Christ. And your spouse, your children, your parents, they're not going to be perfect in this life. They're going to let you down. They can't give the world, but Jesus can. And if you don't believe Jesus can, you haven't gone to him enough to find out. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we confess to you that I know that there are so many different experiences in this room. There are people who have been traumatically hurt by marriage. There are people who have been greatly fulfilled by marriage. There are people who are not married and want to or maybe have said, I never want to get married. Regardless, would you give us a high view of this institution because you created it? And would you help us to fix our eyes as the bride of Christ, the church, on the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can fill our needs, ultimately, who alone can cause us to stand strong in a world that is under the sway of the serpent, who hates you and would do anything he can to hurt your cause. Father, give us strength as the church to stand for truth and to be the bride of of Christ. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand now together and sing our closing hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, number 546.
now leave with God's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.